Welcome to Creative Pedagogy's uh, Graduate Seminar. Kia ora, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Uh, it's April 1st here. Uh, hi, I'm Ben Dyson from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Um, we are sunny and 51 degrees here in Greensboro, North Carolina. Stephen Harvey is joining us from uh, University of Ohio in Athens, Ohio. What's the weather like there, Stephen? Well, I'm in Pickerington, Columbus, which is uh, about an hour north of Athens, but uh, it's nine, well, I do it in English, right? Nine degrees. So what's that? I don't know. Nine degrees Celsius? 18, it's about 50, same as you, and uh, it's mm -hmm. a bit cloudy. It was sunny earlier. Yeah, well, you know, Columbus, Ohio is a cloudy spot. I know exactly where Pickering is because, I, you know, I'm one of those Buckeyes. Um, so welcome, Stephen, and we look forward to uh, gaining some knowledge and understanding of game-centered approaches, and you can tell us what preferred term you would like to use. Uh, there are many different terms used with uh, different games modeled brace practice. Uh, but first, uh, Stephen, if it's okay, um, I'll say that I met you, uh, if I remember correctly, in New Zealand, uh, ICEP 2014. And then you and I and my family and Steve and uh, Tristan Mulhead went to the beach, uh, Motowai Beach on the west coast of Auckland, Aotearoa, New Zealand. I had a great day. Donald, at this point, I think, uh, could you try to share the screen with Stephen just so that he can take over in terms of the PowerPoint? And then we'll just let you take over, Stephen, for a little presentation. And then there'll be questions from students, if that's okay. And we'll just go from there. Does that sound mm -hmm. okay, Stephen? Yeah, I think I can share the screen too at my end, but uh, we'll sure, see. Sure, go for it if you, yeah. So anyway, uh, I'm not saying this to, uh, well, I guess I should go back to the start, right? So I, um, I grew up in England, in the northeast part of England. Um, I'm a bit of a chav. What that means is council house and violent. Um, so don't worry, I'm not going around hitting people. Um, but... Um, I, I come from quite a working class background. I'm a first generation college student uh, and I'm certainly the first person to go on and do a master's and a PhD in um, my family. So that's uh, probably a little bit of interest. I obviously was out doing stuff when I was, uh, like I used to go out in the backyard and play tennis all the time and hit the ball against the wall. And we used to have a cricket net in the back garden. I used to play cricket with my brother and fight sometimes. and I'd always be going to the field and I'd make up little games when I played tennis. I'd pretend I was Stefan Edberg and do all these funny things. So um, that was where I kind of got a bit of background in game-based pedagogies and sort of coming up with creative ideas about um, play-based things that I was doing in my own kind of growing up and my own acculturation. So that was that. And then I played cricket, soccer, badminton to the high level and then field hockey to like a high level too and represented English universities at badminton and I played national league field hockey and whatever. Um, I coached at the international junior international level in field hockey and I've subsequently coached one of the USA Masters teams at the World Cup a couple of years ago. And I've done quite a lot of work with USA field hockey. Um, I currently coach a youth soccer team. I coach my son's soccer team. So that's another thing that I'm doing. And um, 
I've always had an interest in soccer since I came, particularly to the United States. I used to do soccer camps and things like that. Um, I did my after coming over and doing soccer camps, I went to Oregon State and did a PhD because I liked being over in the States and I liked the West Coast. And I worked with Professor Hans Vandermars, who you may have heard of. He was interested in bringing some game-based pedagogy stuff into his um, or their programs at Oregon State. He subsequently went to Arizona State. We keep in touch and do various things. Um, so that was how I got over here in the first place. Then I went back to the UK and worked in Leeds University for a few years and at Bedfordshire. And I predominantly interacted with David Kirk in both jobs. And um, as Ben alluded to, I did a bit of collaborative work with um, Vicky and um, when she was a doctoral student there and uh, Ashley was a colleague of mine there too. So we used to teach stuff in models-based pedagogies. Um, on coming to the United States, I worked at West Virginia and started to embed some of the tactical game stuff there and um, start to make some connections to some organizations of which one was USA Field Hockey. So that's kind of a little bit of a, a background. I taught in schools for a, a couple of years and then I did quite a lot of substitute teaching. Um, so that's kind of a bit of a background. I taught in a school for my PhD dissertation. I was the lead instructor. So that was a good experience too, kind of getting, and, and I'm always like going out there and trying different things. Uh, when I coach at the moment, I always kind of start with a game. Uh, US soccer uh, for Eddie, US soccer have a play practice play model, which is very like the tactical games model that they advocate for in their coach education programs. So that's something that I tend to do um, and adopt when I coach right now, but I do do drills and uh, technical development too. So we can maybe talk about that at the end. Um, this presentation is one that I gave when I got um, the Curriculum and Instruction Honor Award at Shape America Convention last year. I thought it, it sort of looks at game-based pedagogies and that's the term that I'm using, right? It's all encompassing. And um, it starts to talk about, well, what do we know what don't we know and where we're going to go to next and for those in not in physical education it's a bit researchy so you'll see some of the connections about where we have gaps in this line of research and where we have gaps across other school subjects too so uh, obviously uh, i went to advance here so uh, obviously thanks to ben for inviting me to talk and hopefully if you've got any questions as we go along, just uh, give me a nudge. I'll try and talk for 15, 20 minutes or something and see how we get on. Uh, maybe it might be a little bit longer. So the, the things that I'm going to talk about, uh, looking at the past, and there is a bit of good, bad and ugly with game-based pedagogies. Uh, we're going to look at how we might improve game-based pedagogy research because that's kind of some of the business that we're in. And then suggestions for integration of research effort. Uh, what I'm going to talk about is really trying to also, it, there's a focus on research, but we're trying to think about what research uh, can do to try and make research more meaningful to practice at the same time. And that's why we're going to talk about this engineering approach to research, which I'm sure, again, there'll be some transfers, transfer across to like the math and the educational aspects too. So in terms of looking at the past this will be a very brief dive. Uh, so David Kirk in 2016 at the TGFU conference. Yes, there is a, is, there is a game-based pedagogies conference. It's supposed to be on this summer in Worcester, but it probably won't be. Um, 
So he asked the question, are game-based pedagogies only a model that test pilots can fly? So there's a lot of discourse around game-based pedagogies and whether it's beyond the skill set of the, the normal um, teacher or instructor. Um, but I do think that it's just something you've got to invest a bit of time in. And Ben will have talked, I'm sure, about cooperative learning. And you had Hasty and Wallhead talk to you about sport education. Um, so, you know, there is an educational process here and uh, we'll see how it goes. But this is an interesting question. And the idea of the test pilot, uh, people like me, so I would go into a school and I would teach it and everyone thinks, oh, that's great, it works. But then when other teachers try and adopt it, they give up quite early because um, it becomes a bit cumbersome and they face a, a, a number of dilemmas, pedagogical, cultural, um, political, etc. in schools. So they kind of give up. Um, so Butler, so Joy Butler, who since passed, unfortunately, um, she argued that if TGFU particularly was to become a global initiative, um, then it must be anchored in sound research through a community of inquiry focused on the exploration of ideas. Um, so again, like we'll argue as we move forward, um, we would contend that in this area of research that this hasn't really been realized yet. Um, this was a paper they published back in 2015. There was a special issue of a, a journal that went out on game-based pedagogies um, at, that was in a, an Agora journal, which is a Spanish journal, but it was all written in English. And they put together a paper looking at the plethora of research on game-based pedagogies. And so what they came up with was that there was um, this steady increase in research and interest in game-based pedagogies. But one would argue, even though we have all this research, that there's an issue of the quality of the research, and I'll put my hand up and uh, admit to something like that. And the general feeling here is some of the research is still quite equivocal. Um, and another phrase for equivocal, right, is ambiguous. And so there's a bit of ambiguity. So the, the pictures in the background are various reviews of literature that all came about in the sort of 2013, 2014, 2015 era. And there was this paper on top 10 research questions for TGFU in Research Quarterly. So all these, uh, which was a stimulus for the 2016 conference uh, back in Cologne. So all these papers were, um, and I wrote one of these, which is the, uh, the top left. And then I recently did one about game, a review of game-based pedagogies in coaching as well as in teaching. And so the, the top left and bottom right ones are ours. So the idea is that we've got a lot of research, but a lot of it's not very good quality and, and some of the findings are equivocal. Um, in fact, in this paper, uh, Andrew Miller did, he said that only one paper was top quality research because it had a, you know, it had the traditional scientific approach with a control group, etc. And if you have done anything with the educational psychology, you know how that goes. Um, some of my arguments going to be that that's not an appropriate research methodology for what we're trying to do with game-based pedagogies, but we'll see. Um, so, um, or at least in the early stages anyway. So the, the good of game-based pedagogies is there's some association between 
game-based pedagogies and outcomes such as, uh, and I'm uh, trusting that you have a bit of an idea of how a TGFU lesson flows. Is that correct or not? So you play a game, you uh, try and develop some level of tactical awareness, and usually you do that through asking what questions. Then there's uh, you move from the what to the how, so you ask questions about how they're going to be able to do stuff. So that requires some um, knowledge of skill and movement. If you cannot modify the game to meet the needs of the learners, or you try and do that and you still find that the learners are struggling, then what you would do is you do a, 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 a skill-based or a technical activity. So in soccer terms, you might play 4v4, a corner goal activity. Then you might play 3v1, keep away game. Then what you might do is some passing in pairs if they're still struggling right over a short or long distance. Then you might go back to the three-on-one game and there might be some restrictions on what the defender can do. And then you would go back to a four-on-four game. Um, the idea of having four goals is that there's more opportunities to score and um, it opens up the field so people are not bunching, right? And that would be focused on the tactical problem of maintaining possession, right? So that's kind of how a game would flow. Um, it sounds simple, but it's, it's quite hard to manage when you've got a lot of kids in physical education. Uh, and that's one of the challenges in the US is sometimes the, um, the gym space is not amenable to having multiple small-sided games. So that creates an issue of teachers being a bit more creative because um, you've got to sit kids out or you've got to like, rotate them in and out. So that's a problem for some teachers where the focus is on physical activity. But should it be? That's a question. So anyway, we have some association between declarative knowledge um, and decision-making. So when we compare TGFU or game-based pedagogies to traditional pedagogies, like the, the usual four-part lesson, which you might see through dynamic PE, you know, warm-up, skill focus, um, skill development, uh, or fitness focus, skill focus, and then a game at the end, um, we, we tend to develop better declarative knowledge. We have some evidence for being able to develop support and movement during gameplay. So like off the ball movement ideas, especially in invasion games. Uh, there's a bit of a dearth of research on net and wall games and striking and fielding games here. Um, the biggest thing for me is uh, that I've sort of noticed is there's quite a big effective outcome from game-based pedagogies. And this is probably the thing that we would, um, if we had to sell our house based on some evidence for game-based pedagogies or put our mortgage on it, this would be it uh, for me. Um, one thing that gets missed a lot of the time when we compare research is that skill execution does not get any worse when um, children or, and young people uh, or other, other older folks do TGFU units. The problem is that people want us to get better skill execution through TGFU when that's not necessarily the focus. But the good thing is, and the good news is, it doesn't get any worse. So if you do more of one thing, like playing games, you would think that skill execution would get worse, but it doesn't. And so that's a big positive that seems to get missed for me. And then some of the research that I've done, as well as looking at support during gameplay, uh, is focused on moderate to vigorous physical activity. And the idea is that um, you can, I, we had a paper that was supposed to be titled, uh, you can have your cake and eat it, but we got told we couldn't use that title because it 
it had a focus on uh, eating cake and that wasn't good in physical education, right? So um, we had to change it to two sides of the same coin. So the idea is that you can have uh, two sides of the same coin. You can get an MVPA outcome and cognitive and effective outcomes, right, at the same time and potentially some skill outcomes too. So you can have a more holistic approach. Um, so that's, that's that idea. Um, now, the problem is because some of the, not only is the quality of some of these studies being questioned because there's this argument about do we compare TGFU to something else and all this kind of stuff. Um, and a lot of the research we'll talk about in a minute uh, focused on the scientific approach when is it better than something else? Well, why does it have to be better than something else when it's different, right? So it's kind of, it's kind of like saying, um, I use, uh, again, I use cooperative learning. Why it's got different outcomes. So why should it be, have to be any better than having kids work on their own, right? So it's, it, it's just different. But there is a disparity between research and practice. So we've got this research saying, this is how you do TGFU, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but we never see any of this on boots on the ground. So if I go out the field behind me and watch soccer coaches coach, even though US soccer say play, practice, play, none of the coaches do it. And this is because there's some cultural, um, societal issues, um, as well as some pedagogical challenges, but also some conceptual challenges because people just don't get it. Um, but there is some inconclusive nature of the TGFU position, uh, proposition so is tgfu being positioned well with the with the uh practitioner community right we, we may be trying to sell it as something that's radically different when really it isn't so it kind of turns people off from the the start in place um, and because we've tried to say do these comparative kind of methods and say that, oh, if you're not doing TGFU, you're an idiot and you're a bad teacher, that doesn't really set us up for success when working with teachers. Um, there are some other issues like uh, we know in math, teachers don't know their stuff. They don't know their content knowledge. Phil Ward's been doing some research in his group on that area, and that's a study we could look at. Do teachers who do some of the content knowledge stuff that Phil does, could they teach TGFU better than people that, don't have that prerequisite content knowledge. And my argument would be yes, and that would be a hypothesis. But that research hasn't been done yet, so that's something that I was looking to do. Um, so these were um, in the top 10 research questions paper by Mehmet. The notion is that can physical, psychomotor, cognitive, effective, and cultural development be fostered by TGFU approaches? So this was question 10. Um, and this one for me would be, this is a big question to ask. And the focus, what I'm going to talk about is, is like, can we do this by doing our research? Can we get all these outcomes? And again, we might be selling ourselves short because we're trying to claim that we can get all these outcomes when it might be that TGFU is better for certain things, but not good for other things. And as part of a broad and balanced curriculum, then we might use TGFU for some things or game-based pedagogies for some things, but not others, right? So that, and that's fine to me. And you might use it in some grade levels, but not others. Um, but this is a big question that research still has to uh, answer if we're going to make the, the, um, some of these claims. Um, 
so we need contextual and ecological research. So ecological means we need to go out in the field. So my MVPA studies, I went to a school and sat and watched 75 physical education lessons and I was the lead um, researcher. Um, and I coded everything that happened, like using time sample event recording. People don't do this anymore, right? And be, there's some challenges by getting an IRB to be able to do that. Um, I wasn't able to, or I didn't want a video because um, that would put it up a different level. Um, but we were able to realize some outcomes in that study. But that's a lot of field work. And with the challenges of uh, what goes on in academia these days and the pressures for faculty, sometimes that, that's, that being out in the field is not what people want to see you do, right? So there's a whole host of challenges here. But we need to be getting out into the field to collect these data if we, uh, if we want to do it. Um, for the, um, just says Ben, and then you can jump in. For the uh, Irish um, uh, contingent here, uh, I just supervised the PhD back in Ireland in the University of Limerick and with Paul Canerk, and Paul was going out and doing this field work. Right? He's very dedicated to it. So that's the type of thing that we need to do if we're going to move this research on forward, which I'll talk about in a second. So Ben. I just wanted to say that uh, I think this is a huge hamstringing uh, sort of uh, ethos that's crept into uh, our field that it is too, in the too hard basket to go out and do research in schools with kids or out in the community with uh, community groups. And um, I would argue and support that position I think you're creating or supporting is that you know, we do need to spend more time out there uh, with the, where the rubber hits the road. And, uh, you know, I think uh, ethics is uh, sometimes just used in a, as an excuse uh, for, mm -hmm. uh, for, uh, for students and for uh, faculty. So, uh, Stephen, I'll let you carry on, but that's my two cents. Yeah, there, I mean, and there are some challenges. Again, we've got math and other uh, people in broader teacher education context. So sometimes going into an actual physical classroom where the geographical space is confined could arguably be a little bit easier. You know, if you're going to video, you don't need a mic on the teacher, blah, blah, blah. And these are some challenges that, yes, we easily overcome, but they can create some barriers for doing the good quality research. Um, similarly, in physical education, sometimes you get some dropout of um, students where they're not participating all the time, yada, yada. So this creates some challenges too. And, and I've been out in the field, so I've lived the dream or not the dream as the case may be. But this is something that we need to do. So improving uh, game-based pedagogy research. So there was a paper in 2003. So when I was doing a presentation for 2016 for TGFU, I did a bit of research on what are some different ways in which we can build an evidence base for somebody uh, or something in education? So I, I read a lot of papers in education research, of which this is one. Um, to, again, we're not very good in PE sometimes of going outside our field, particularly in the broader education sense, and looking at what research says there. And there's a lot of good stuff in journals like this uh, Education Researcher and, and other journals like Teaching and Teacher Education, etc. And we need to publish more in these journals too. 
these are offshoots and I get digressed, but, uh, but the notion of this paper was hit home for me because when I read this paper, it really spoke to me about where we're lacking with some game-based pedagogy research. Um, there is a group on game-based pedagogies called, um, or there is an approach called constraint-led approach. And this group have started to, to kind of connect across the globe and do similar research and agree on what that research is. But that to me is not game-based pedagogy research, although it's called nonlinear pedagogy. It's, it's, it, it's different and it's, it's, uh, it's a different version of a game-based pedagogy, which you can talk about later. Um, but they're starting to get some of the connections together for doing good research. So the idea of this, um, or the main arguments in this paper were that educational research does not often lead to practical advances. It's someone going in to get tenure and promotion and look good and all this kind of stuff. And we'll, we'll see how that um, plays out in a sec. The research-based development of tools and processes for use by practitioners is largely missing in education. Um, and they suggest that this is where engineering types of research come in. Uh, and we need to realign the system, um, but that will require significant changes in work patterns. So we've got some systemic issues at the political and also, as I've talked about, within universities that might stop us from doing the type of field work that we require to really move our agenda forward, not just in game-based pedagogies, but others. So the paper... Um, identifies three different approaches to research of which the scientific approach, the humanities and the engineering approach. So the scientific approach we're all familiar with is we try to develop better insights and improve knowledge and understanding of how the world works through an analysis of a phenomena and building models to explain them. Uh, my example of TGFU research or game-based pedagogy research was the early research that was done in the 1990s or late 80s, early 90s, where we looked at comparative approaches to say which method is best. The problem with the question, which method is best, it doesn't do a lot for practitioners. And we had a lot of things like this paper where researchers went in and they took one class and divided it by two. 12 kids doing one model, 12 the others. And there are some people in our field that think this was good quality research, and it was. But it, to me, it wasn't ecologically valid because they took one class and divided it by two and then had two different teachers, which wouldn't happen, right? So some of that was a little bit flawed. Um, and therefore, it doesn't generate the practical solutions that we're looking for. It answers a question like, oh, which one was better than which one? But it doesn't lead to developments in practice. Um, so the humanities approach is original investigation and taken in order to gain knowledge and understanding. Scholarship, the invention and generation of ideas where these lead to substantially improved insights. Um, so there was 1,104 TGFU studies on that graphic I put up earlier where the, you saw the trend going up. And my question would be how many um, studies are of this kind of humanities ilk. So to me, it's people talking about, oh, TGFU is really great, but again, not generating practical solutions and kind of building some momentum on, oh, this looks like it's, it's cool, 
um, and it, it operates on the basis of ideology and professional consensus. So it's subject to fads. So we have, um, oh, you know, this theory is good. So let's write a paper about TGFU and how it applies to X theory. And then we'll do one about Y theory, but we never go out and test that theory in practice, right? So we don't make changes to the field based on evidence. We do it based on us five having an argument and then we write it up in a paper and put it in quest and nobody reads it. So that's kind of, for me, what the humanities approach is sometimes. Um, largely, it's evangelical. And this, for me, is where sometimes some of the TGFU research is right now. It's evangelical. It's people like going, oh, we've got this holistic approach that's really good for students. We don't really know what happens when we teach students this way or we have no evidence for it but we like it and it sounds good and when i talk to my principal and say this is i use creative pedagogies he loves it and he gives me my merit pay every year but does it actually do anything we don't know um so the suggestion in this paper to use an engineering approach is the use of existing knowledge in experimental development to produce new or substantially improved materials, devices, products, processes, including design and instruction, combines imaginative design and empirical testing. And that's important where we have design of new curriculum, for example, and then we have subsequent uh, or simultaneous testing of those and revision of those curricula in all in practical settings because we're testing them maybe in pilot settings, but then going out and testing them in multiple settings. Um, and then key products are, to, uh, are tools and processes that work well for their intended users and uh, uses and users with evidence-based evaluation. Um, again, in TGFU, we have this argument about model fidelity. Oh, we need model fidelity. Well, do we? Um, if we can use something like a TGFU approach and realize some positive outcomes and we have evidence for them, why does fidelity matter? Or why does it matter that I'm doing the same thing as Eddie? It like exactly the same, right? It, it might, as long as it looks similar, then it maybe doesn't matter. So we get wrapped up in these arguments that we don't really need to be in. Um, so in this engineering approach, we have the following. Uh, can I say at this point as well, we tend to do, and I'm guilty of this, small scale studies. And Slavin, who's the cooperative learning guy, which you've probably heard of, Robert Slavin, he, he's on Twitter and he's banging on about this all the time, saying we do small scale research and then we have to do meta-analyses to try and collate that research together and then we start making claims about its efficacy based on all the, the summation of all these small scale studies. But we never go out and do these large scale studies. And this is something that's never happened in game based pedagogies either. We haven't done anything that's substantive in large scale. Um, so the engineering approach uh, has the following elements, robust mechanisms for taking ideas from labs to practice. And our lab, you know, we would, the practical context is the lab, um, the field-based uh, context. We have issues pertaining to doing research. We need a stable theoretical base, which again, you could argue TGFU doesn't necessarily have, although the predominant people would argue that it's got a constructivist base. Um, but now you've got the nonlinear pedagogy um, group talking about 
uh, ecological dynamics and dynamical systems theory, which is good because it, that could potentially be a stable theoretical base too. Uh, you've got teams of adequate size in different countries and contexts doing research on the same thing. You have a, a pocket of sustained funding and individual and group accountability. Um, so what are some robust mechanisms for taking ideas to practice? So I, I did the studies that I've done and I published another study where I got a group of um, physical education, teacher education students to deliver lessons to each other. And I will caveat that it was to each other, but they'd have a class of 24, but in a decent space where they teach some of these. And we looked at MVPA outcomes when they taught. And um, this would probably be an alpha version study, right? Where we, and they use Mitchell and Oslin's materials in the book to say, well, are these materials any good? Do they kind of work? What amendments would we make? So the, the idea of take, developing robust mechanisms to practice is that we have these design um, and pilot testing or what they call design experiments. And Inez Rivegno did one of these in 2001 that was part of a monograph she did in um, JTPE around tactical approaches. Not game-based, well, not TGFU, but she called it like a tactical approach, teaching it to elementary. And these were some good papers um, and probably one of the best set of papers in game-based pedagogy research. So she designed um, a set of goals for classroom learning for the elementary group. Um, she, had, she developed an alpha version of materials that kind of were good enough to take out into the field. And then they did some assessment of the, the goals. So it was passing and cutting skills and they would have conversations as a research group after each lesson with the teachers yada yada right but she did this in like um with mccautry and some other colleagues um and did this idea but she was an n of one research group so the idea is that what we potentially would have is um Oh, we, and, and, that, and that's fine. But so that's step one in the engineering approach. We take materials from this book, we test them in a classroom setting with one teacher. Uh, round two would then be, we'd, we'd have made amendments to those curriculum materials. And remember, we'd have to do this over a range of different sports. And that's another challenge with game-based pedagogies. But round two would be testing alpha versions in 10 case study classrooms. So we'd expand our N in the sense of the N wouldn't be the children. It would be the classrooms that we're using. Um, th that would be the unit of analysis, I guess, is what I'm saying. Uh, we would gather the data. We'd offer studies that would give, uh, which is probably what Peter Hasty talked about. He hates these uh, studies that go in and take a survey of kids um, liking or not liking PE and then write a paper about it because the researcher never goes in and observes the PE lesson. He wants, um, and they can never describe what went on in the, in, in, the, in the methodology of these papers because they don't go in and watch what happens in the field. So people like me, Pete, uh, Tristan, we go out into the field and therefore we can give robust descriptions of what happens because we take field notes, and that's, again, what they did with Inez's study. So Inez's studies would just be need to be scaled up um, across into different classrooms. Um, so the conversation we would be having here is, 
under what circumstances out of these 10 different classrooms. And we could have a range of different classrooms, like we could have in a city, rural, high SES, low SES, private school, independent school, uh, public school, right? Uh, so under what circumstances does teachers' use of game-based pedagogies work? And yes, we would have to dial in probably on one activity area to start with, and maybe a, a middle school age would be good, right? So we'd give Jennifer a pat on the back for middle school there. Um, so then in round three, uh, rather than having an alpha version, we would have like a beta version, so a second version of these curriculum materials, and then what we would do to get some randomized control trial, and again, Slavin talks about the problem with using this match pairs kind of idea. Um, but we, we next level is randomization, right? So the next stage is in round three, we do some match pairs. So we get 100 classrooms. We have um, 50 do game-based pedagogies, 50 do something, uh, do... Uh, a traditional model and there's some issues regarding professional development how you control for that and all that kind of stuff uh, but there'd be random assignment of the current like what it is they're doing now to teach soccer versus the beta curriculum to teach soccer and you would choose the variables to be examined uh, for wide dis distribution of the results um, so what you'd be doing here is you would um, take into consideration the conditions of implementation because those would matter. So big space, uh, little space, do they have the appropriate facilities, blah, blah, blah. Um, and this is a bit like models-based practice. If you can't, if you have a too small a gym to get multiple small-sided games and you can't do it in that particular classroom, you've got to do something else. Um, so you would have to use a different instructional model. But the idea is you could get places that would be able to do this type of uh, research but getting 50 to 100 classrooms is uh, is a lot and it requires a lot of funding so this might be pie in the sky what i'm suggesting here um, so if randomization to different classrooms is not possible um, you could you could use some type of uh, crossover design which again in the content development studies that phil ward's done um, they provide some good ways in which to do um, study comparative studies without kind of doing t traditional randomization. So you could do crossover designs. You could do de uh, randomization delay. Um, you could do blocking and cluster analyses. Um, so blocking is um, um, a technique that they're using in again the content development literature where you um, have a certain like n of those 50 um, delivering it in a particular way so you analyze the block rather than everyone I'm not explaining this very well but I'll come back to it um, a little bit and then you could have uh, you could obviously use covariates in your analysis as well if randomized but hopefully you'd be able to get the matching um, and then um, in terms of um, other things, you would obviously have issues pertaining to research, such as funding. You would need to agree what your, um, and Inez's work was really good actually, because she used a combination of like dynamical systems theory and constructivist theories. 
to create what she call like a situated learning perspective, but it's not really like situated learning as you might know it. Um, but she was taking the best things of both theories and matching them, uh, which I think is a way we need to go for future research. Um, you have to get research teams of adequate size in different countries and contexts. You have to develop sustained funding and individual and group accountability. Um, where you might sit right now, if you're doing this, is you might be able to go and do round one, right, for your PhD dissertation. And then if you're interested in this area, you would go out and start doing a bit of round two. But this is a lifetime's work here. Um, there are obviously some barriers like we talked about to doing this kind of thing. Um, the, the problem is at the moment is we're building on quicksand because we don't have design specifications that are appropriate. Like we don't know some of the stuff in Mitchell's book. We don't know if it works. So we need to get all that stuff and that's tactical games model. And we need to test that curriculum out with a group of young people and see if it works and get data on it and not just be like, Oh, I went out and taught those 10 lessons and Oh yeah, they worked. We can't, you know, so we're building a bit on quicksand. Uh, we need to obviously have time. We need to have researchers um, working in groups rather than in silos. We need to standardize measures that we're using. And that was a problem with the early TGFU research that they use different measures all the time for different things. So we, you know, doing some type of meta-analysis is very difficult, even when you do like these N, uh, N of 10 studies. Um, you need to obviously do extension and replication studies. Um, and there's an absence of a research-based practice culture, which Ben jumped in and sort of talked about. Um, and then obviously we need funding. Some ideas on standardized variables. So I've just got a few more slides and I'll be done. Um, so in a psychomotor sense, we have some behavioral assessment of, of gameplay tools, which yes, potentially would require video, but you could potentially do some of these live if you, if you trained coders um, and minimize the number of variables you were gonna collect data on. Um, and Phil does some of this with, again, with the content knowledge work, uh, Phil Ward, where they go out and do tally checks while in the, in the um, classroom. Cognitive, tested, declarative, and procedural knowledge are useful. There's a book by, uh, is it McGee and Farrell, that have all the content development questions. So like common content knowledge questions. So you could use them to assess procedural and declarative knowledge, pre-post tests. And then you could give motivational surveys or look at systematic observation or use field notes to look at the effective domain. And then you could assess physical activity by using, like I've done, accelerometers. Okay. And then lastly, you could, again, like I've done, take, um, use SOFIT to get um, teacher behavior data if you wanted to. So, Last couple of things, um, when you do research, it's good that you try and look at the four levels of research and development. So again, they talk about this at the end of their paper. There's a learning level, an individual teacher level, representative teachers in a system change level. And you can see that there are different variables. So when you study the learning level, like what are students doing, you need, um, you need uh, the task variables, uh, so that would be curriculum, 
and then you'd need variables about the student, sort of like motivational things, like I just showed you, and psychomotor development. But when you talk about what's going on with the individual teacher, you have to start to scale up. Uh, scale up. So you need to then talk about, well, what was the teacher's instruction like? And then when you get to representative teachers, you've got to look at teacher instruction, student and task. So that's a, a problem. Uh, where we're at right now, maybe with the game-based pedagogy research is, we've done a lot of the stuff at the individual teacher level, where it's been like, one, like me in my PhD, it'd be me teaching one class and we, we look at instruction, student, task. But what we need to do is scale up and start doing studies that look at representative teachers if we're gonna get more teachers using this model uh, or a pedagogy approach to teaching, right? And what happens there is as you scale up to representative teachers, you can then scale up to get a system-wide change. We're never gonna get system-wide change if we just have one or two teachers here and there helping us with the odd study on game-based pedagogies. Right? It needs to be done at a, a broader level. Uh, what they talk about is then once you've got those different levels across the four levels, you get this waterfall effect. So you start to get the system change because everyone then falls into line. Um, so, um, so some suggested changes for game-based pedagogy research would be more engineering research, more standardization of research methods and instruments, and more vertical integration of research effort. And remember, we're, we're not on our own. We just need to collaborate better and have research labs that, like UNC could have a research lab for creative pedagogies, one of which would be game-based pedagogy, and they would start, like get doctoral students all focused on the one thing, um, and driving a research agenda on it, as an example, right? But if we don't have those central labs pumping out people, and that's what, again, I'm using Phil Ward's example at Ohio State, that's kind of what he's done with that content knowledge. And now students have graduated, they've gone to different places and they've set up their own labs and they're doing that type of work. And he's doing it in China, in Belgium, Turkey, right? So th he's scaling up. So it's a good example to use for where we need to go with game-based pedagogies. Um, so to conclude, game-based pedagogies have not been successfully operationalized by teachers, but part of that problem is because of people like us. Um, the decoupling of research from practice leaves us both ineffective and vulnerable, Burkhardt and Schoenfeld says, uh, and the engineering approach to research and team science and replication can help build a pl uh, efficacious platform for impactful longitudinal game-based research. So it feels like Groundhog Day at the moment, right? With coronavirus, um, every day seems the same, but it's the same with game-based pedagogy research. We, we ask the same question all the time. So that is uh, that. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. That was uh, very interesting. And thanks for sharing that presentation with us. Uh, I'm sure all the students have got lots of questions regarding that. Uh, does anyone want to start? Uh, folks, we just sort of like chip in and then we have a discussion now and just go with the flow. Uh, mm -hmm. Stephen, do you have a certain time frame with us or how are you no, doing? No, I'm fine. 
Thank you very much. I, I don't have a life. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I know you have a big life and uh, family and just want to respect that. So, no, no, it's fine. Uh, yeah. I'm happy to spend the time because I took up a bit of your time. So you, I'm happy to give back. Yeah, no worries. Uh, let, let me just start off, though, with uh, what you, I think, finished with, which was, you know, what might be preventing us from doing this collaboration and these research efforts. And you talked about Phil's work. Um, so how do you see with games-based uh, pedagogy moving forward? Uh, is there a possibility for that? And have you got a vision that you can share with us uh, building on what you've already presented? Well, Shane Pell and I talk, right? Mm -hmm. And Shane yep. Yep. is of the opinion mm -hmm. that, if I can say Shane's of the opinion, I'm kind of share the opinion, is that there's, there's no momentum here now with the game-based pedagogy research. Hmm. Um, and the problem is that if we don't build some momentum, and this is where doing good quality research is important, mm -hmm. then we're not going to get teachers doing or, and coaches doing stuff that's different from what we see on a daily basis because we're not going to drive that system-wide change, right? I, I, um, so the thing that Phil's been able to do is obviously start small at his own place and then he's had some students that have done projects and then they go out and say like Emmy's at West Virginia. So then She's doing that. There's uh, Bon Moore's at uh, was it East Carolina, and then he's got um, um, Insuk at Kent State near me in Ohio. So I, I think that um, that does provide us with a model um, for future research. And I think the other thing in educational settings is we need to sort of start small and build our way up. I think that we're looking to get a $5 million grant right out of the gate. And I think that we need to, again, start small, invest time in the process, understand that this is an important agenda because that's the other problem is I think people think, oh, I'm doing research on people playing games. It's just, you know, people think I'm a joke. Well, to me, it's not. If you're doing good research, you're doing good research, right? And it's about you being happy with the work that you're doing rather than what you're doing the research about, if you know what I mean. Like every paper you publish should be a quality paper, no matter. And that, I think, is a little bit of the problem with all due respect to some of the uh, people who've been doing work in this area. Um, the robustness of the things that they have done has not been... Um, not been there so we've we've kind of shot ourselves in the foot because the quality of evidence sometimes is suspect so we'd have been better off doing less research than the 1104 studies that we've done and only do 15 but make sure they're really good papers um so i i mean there are some groups uh, there's the folks at bridgewater state um in it, doing a lot of game-based pedagogy stuff. I don't know how much research they're doing. Uh, I've tried to get something going where I try to connect with um, those folks um, and, and get like a template going for what would be a design study that we could all do in our own backyard. 
And then it's about getting people to make that first effort to go out and do that design study, possibly by getting uh, research funding, like an internal grant from their own institution, and then try and, you know, but we need to agree on those variables to start with. Um, but I, I don't think a lot of doctoral students are very keen about doing game-based pedagogy research. And I think that when my experience at West Virginia was that people got put off doing that uh, when they came in because they need to get out of here um, and finish and graduate. Um, and uh, so that's some of the issue. But I think also it gets downplayed sometimes by the faculty because the physical activity agenda has been so high that we don't see the benefits of the game-based pedagogy, which I try to argue being more holistic, right? So there's a number of challenges. Stephen, could I just uh, take you up on that as well too? Um, because, um, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric around these things. Um, I'm just wondering, does, um, do you find yourself some, sometimes like having to justify the model to people then? Uh, in, in, in so far as that, uh, you know, it's a very, or a gains-based approach is, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty simple, but I think, is, sorry, what I'm trying to say is, is there a connection or is, I think at the moment what I see is this shift from physical education with GBA towards maybe industry uh, or say like professional sports and professional coaching. And that has led that, that, that uh, I think that has maybe caused it maybe to suffer from a physical education perspective in so far as that maybe the best researchers that may have been working in gyms are now maybe in other settings or as I said in maybe professional or competitive environments where the quality of research that's been done in the physical education gym mightn't be the same as what's being done and the same kind of time and money isn't being invested. I don't know if we have all the evidence to suggest that I'd have to look at all the research that's out there but there's certainly a growth in some of the game-based pedagogy research in um, coaching i would also contend uh, to support your point that a lot of governing bodies have jumped on the bandwagon with game-based pedagogies rightly or wrongly like u.s soccer usa field hockey u.s lacrosse are doing some form of it but more constraint-led approach but they have an interest in tgfu um the fa in england the football association and we're doing a bit of a project with them on how it came about the rugby football union so there's quite a cricket is another one um, and this is where the skill acquisition um, folks also come in researchers they don't bring that educative perspective but they bring a skill acquisition focus so I think a lot of the driver is that the skill acquisition folk who have a propensity not to want to go into schools, but work in coaching settings are the ones maybe driving that agenda a little bit more, yes. But th what we're saying is a bit anecdotal, and I'm not trying to say what I'm saying to offend anyone. Um, but I agree that um, it's a bit more sexy, excuse the term, to go out and work with USA field hockey with their national team than it is to work with a bunch of 11-year-old kids in their futures program for sure and, and even a bunch of 11 year old kids in a physical education setting and the reason i say that uh is because i think that the things you talked about like the holistic um 
outcomes or are the benefits of of the, of the of GBA approaches within physical education. When people look at that type of pedagogy, they're probably saying, oh, well, that's for, like, that's sports, it's not necessarily physical education, you know, when, it's, when that's not the case. But we need to understand that sport is one part of what I would call a, a good physical education program. The issue, and this is probably what Tristan and Peter talked about last week, and we can, if we're going to teach sport, we need to do it well. And one way we know we can do it well is by using a game-based pedagogy because it helps meet the needs of the learner. So that that's a, that's a thing. So I, I don't think we should drive sport out of the equation in a physical education setting. Similarly, I don't think sport's the be-all and end-all and aim of physical education, as some people think it is. Um, but like I say, if we are going to teach sport, we need to do it well. And I have done a bit of stuff with hybrid models too. So looking at sport education with tactical games. So sport education gives you the framework, the broad framework, and this is more in schools. But that has that hybrid method, and Ken Alexander talked about the uh, clinic game day cycle, and this could work very well in youth sport programs where you have a game day, like intramural. So like my son plays U11 soccer, there's two teams. We could have teams playing, mix the kids up and play games one day, and then they go back to their individual coaches and do drills, like a clinic, skill clinic the next day. So that's where you could use sport education and TG uh, game-based pedagogies together. And you could do that in the physical education setting too. Because some of the challenges, well, I don't have time to get them out from a game to a drill and back to a game, if that is what you're going to use. Well, you do the, the play one day and you do the practice the other. Right? And if you've got three lessons a week, you could do play one day, practice the next, play the other. So, But these are things that we need to take out to the field and try out but we, we, we're just you're right there's not enough drive for people to get out there and do this type of thing and I like I say I do think that and I'm not being disrespectful to any of you uh, whatsoever I'm sure Ben's holding you to task but sometimes even as doctoral students we don't want to go out into the field and collect data because we want to get the easy win and I can understand that Right, I, I, I get it. I went to Oregon State and I was in and out in three years. Um, I wanted to get done. I didn't have a pension. I wasn't putting into a retirement plan. I want to get finished. I want to meet a girl and get married, right, and have kids. So I'm, I'm on, I want to get finished. But at the same time, the, prod, the product that we can do is, a, you know, there are a lot of good things that we can do by going out into schools and working with the teachers and having an impact. And yes, that's not gonna make a big impact now, but it will later. Um, my last point, because I'm uh, probably taking a look. Sometimes, like what I found with the, the folks in the organization, the sport organizations is they come to me and they come to people like Shane, they come to people, you know, even like Peter, and they ask questions, but they're interested. Schools aren't. And that's another problem. Schools are not welcoming to people like us. It's like, oh, I've got to do this because you need to do it. For, oh, I'll help you out. Rather than, we want you in. We want you doing this type of work. We want to have a good physical education program. Um, I mean, my daughter 
in my opinion, uh, anecdotally, she's all over the place, arms and legs all over the place. In the last three weeks since she's been off school, I would say that her physical competence has developed out, like significantly. She's inline skating, she's playing four square, she's doing thing, you know, physical activity things with me because I have to take them out for a walk or I go crazy, right? So, but that's not what's happening at schools because um, they don't get physical education and they don't potentially get quality physical education. Um, so anyway, a lot, a lot of stuff going on in the question that you ask. Yeah, uh, thank, it, thanks, Steve. It, is it okay, Donald? Uh, Stephen, just before we go on, um, you've used the term uh, TGFU or Teaching Games for Understanding and uh, Games-Based Pedagogy together and can you just talk a little bit about the difference for the podcast for people who may want to listen to this and may wonder what do you mean what's the difference or what's the similarities here well i think probably the major thing is that it's there's some models or approaches that are termed game-based pedagogies that have morphed from the original or what is arguably the original model tgfu uh, because of cultural variations and practices um for example the tactical games model was a cultural variation for american teachers where steve mitchell and colleagues um, wanted to simplify the the tgfu model um for the american teachers because again probably because you do k through 12 you don't have that content knowledge because you're trying to study so much and you get you build a lot of that content knowledge when you're out in the field by teaching, right? Because you can only teach so much when you're in your physical education, teacher education program. Um, so they found it was a way to get them using something like the original um, TGFU model where there was a focus on the cognitive domain by doing a game at the start, a skill in the middle, and a game at the end. And I've found some physical activity variables, right? There's significantly more physical activity in the games at the start and the end than there is in the skill in the middle. And there's more physical activity in the game at the end than there was at the game at the start. That might be because kids are warmed up, but it also might be, and we need to look at this more, because they've done the skill learning in the middle. Uh, but that's a cultural variation, but they share some similar features, right? So the similar features are that um, you, um, that most of the learning is situated in a game context. Don't split airs on 51% versus 49, right? Because it might vary depending on the session. Uh, but there is an intention to have learning situated in a game-related practice, right? That might be a 4v4 game if it's an invasion game, or it might be a 2v1, Right but it also might be gamifying drills because that creates a level of challenge. So that's one situated kind of practice. Um, another one is that the teacher asks questions to the, to the students. Uh, so, but that doesn't mean you don't give feedback and instruct, you know, cues and instruction. Um, there is, um, you, when you are in the situated practices, you manipulate those practices using principles of modification, exaggeration, and modification representation. So you, you have representation means you simplify a game that's 11 v 11 and it's three on three. 
exaggeration means you use constraints. So you make the field bigger, smaller, wider, longer. So, so that you, um, so if I'm focusing on width, I usually I have multiple goals, four goals, scoring any goal, or uh, switching play, or if I'm also emphasizing width, I might do a shallow field with wide areas. Um, and then um, the other thing that you try and do with the questioning is you try and provide space for students to play, reflect, and then play, which again would align probably to some of the creative uh, approaches you see in the classroom, especially with cooperative learning. And the other thing is that the coach or the teacher tries to build a supportive social moral environment. So there's this notion of um, the affective domain. Again, I've noticed from my kids when we go out and play Foursquare, they're all smiling and you know they're different children than when they are locked up inside. Um, it's like they transform. So I, uh, but they're doing something that's fun. You know, my son's got this Techni football app where it's just doing juggling and running around cones. We're arguing today about him doing it. Whereas if I said let's go and play two on two, he'd be all over it. So we are um, somewhat gamifying the learning context. So situated learning. Manipulate the games is one. Questioning is two. Play, reflect, play is three. And then supportive social moral environment is the fourth. And that doesn't mean you admonish mistakes, but you can highlight those and have a conversation about them. Great, thank you. Uh, questions from uh, students, folks, or comments? Okay, so uh, back, back to the point of why, uh, uh, you know, coaches from sports team are much more quicker responsive, uh, responsive to new pedagogies. I think it's uh, because of the context, because the coaches in sports team, uh, you know, they have much more pressures and they have very immediate outcomes, you know, that which can might decide their occupations in one team. But as in school education, because I'm from China and I know uh, most of the uh, teachers in school, they don't have this kind of pressure. So that might be uh, one reason they are not so, you know, as quick, uh, responsive uh, as uh, the coaches in the sports team. And I have one question about the measurement. Uh, uh, so uh, what measurements or tools do you use to systematically observe and analyze the learning outcomes of, uh, you know, students or players' tactical performance. Because I know when you are capturing the physical intensity, it's easier, you can use accelerometer. And when you are ex uh, measure the skill execution, you can calculate the percentage, uh, you know, based on the software. And because tactical performance is much more complicated, uh, especially in a game scenario, many transitions. Yeah. And what, what, what measures do you use to capture that learning outcomes? Um, there's, a, there's a few. Um, I don't know if Peter talked about this last week or Dr. Hasty. Um, he's done some stuff where you're looking at clustering of players. So if you're playing a game that's three on three, um, there's some research now coming about dispersions of players. So if you've got some accelerometers or GPS monitors, um, obviously give you the global positioning of the players and the, the 
problem is getting ones that are affordable, but Peter does. He has some that only cost, I think, 100 bucks. So they've done some stuff where they've put kids who are more experienced on a team and playing together versus, uh, and this is through his graded competition stuff, and um, kids who have got less experience together. And you can look at dispersion rate, for example, of those players. So um, kids, if, if they're less experienced, might play a bit more bunch ball and I always am going back to invasion game example so excuse me mm-hmm. uh, but that that could be one thing you could look at so th- those are not uh, um, and again if you're um, depending on what it is that you're emphasizing so if you're trying to um, work on like I was doing something with my soccer team like starting positions so starting position is when the goalkeeper gets the ball if you're playing seven on seven I want one person there one there one in the middle one there one there one up front right so I had the th- I had a thing where I would say my BFGs um, make the field big uh, have a good first touch um, go forwards where possible and S is starting position. So I used to, when the goalkeeper get the ball, I'd say BFG, BFG, and everyone would go. Um, and this was just to simplify it for the, the 10, 11 year olds. But the point is that um, you could look again at that dispersion rate at different points, right? And then when they're defending, you, the, you want kids to come together. So our thing is win the ball back five seconds, force to the outside. So again, you've got that, kind of connectedness um, another way to do it if you want to do watch videos you can code behaviors so you can um, it, you can look at decision making behaviors but this is through observational analyses um, rather than putting devices on uh, yeah. so that's through things like the game performance assessment instrument and the team sport assessment procedure uh, the team sport looks at how many times you um, receive the ball versus how much how much time you dispose of the ball and gives you a computation based on those things um the problem that i have with some of those gpi and um tsap metrics is they don't i don't think they're sensitive to level and what i mean by that is um you may get the same game performance outcomes at like some kid might score the same at the highest level of performance versus at the youth level of performance. So they don't discriminate potentially between players because again, you're, if you're playing players at the same level, so you know, that's some of the, the challenges, but those are the things in the literature that are doing that type of thing. Right. Um, you can also do um, stimulated recall interviews with players using video based prompts um, there's also a thing called a verbal protocol analysis technique. So I've just submitted a paper where um, we had kids watch a game. Mm-hmm. And so they're not playing, but they have played this game. Oh, yeah. They're watching somebody else play and they verbalize what's going on. And oh, that's interesting. You look at their goal statements and their condition and action statements, mm-hmm. and you look at the conceptual um, sophistication of the statements and how that develops over time. Yeah. So that's something that we've done. So that's a verbal protocol analysis technique, and that was Sue McPherson who started that, and it's been developed. It's already published the paper, or it's in- uh, this one. Uh, well, it's 
it was rejected from uh, two places already, but it's a, a third time looking, hopefully. But the, the, the notion is that you, uh, there are some papers on this. Um, my, a colleague of mine, Alexander Gil Arias from Spain, he's done a bit of work using this verbal protocol analysis technique. I mean, again, it would be for the, those in teacher education context, it would be like a, a child working through a math problem and trying to verbalize how they're trying to work out a math problem. Um, I mean, the thing about tactics and decision-making, again, is and it's the same with math. I've heard this talked about. It's about speed, right? Because you're trying to develop fluency. So with decision-making and tactics, it's about not only the accuracy of decisions, but also the speed. Uh, and if you have to solve, like my daughter's got problems with processing because she's got ADHD, right? So when confronted with problems, she can't solve them quickly. But she's bright enough to get the right answer. Um, so she's working on trying to work through those problems quicker. And it's the people who can work through those problems quicker that are more successful, right? So you can do that through observation. You can do it through verbal, verbal dialogue and verbalizations, but you can also do it through um, putting monitors on people and looking at their physical location in, in space. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, but would it be fair to say, Stephen, we've got a lot of work to be done in that area, or are you interested in that area? I mean, where do you see the future of that? It seems like kind of important to to be uh, part of uh, the you know teaching games for understanding technical games or you know uh, games based pedagogy, whatever term you'd want to use. Well, the the thing for me is I've done quite a few. I've tried to do a few projects to start people thinking about certain areas, right? So we did a study looking at technology and how we would play a game. We had one group watch and like a little, they played for five minutes. We had one group come in for um, a dialogue session, but instead of a dialogue and a conversation, they watched a little bit of the video back of them playing, like on a video delay, right? And then they went back out and played and there was another group who were playing against them that just chatted when the groups got the video they performed better on the team sport assessment procedure right but when you took the video away they got worse i you might say well why but it relates to more to learning when you give lots of feedback they come reliant on it right so that but the notion is that um this is an area that needs to be explored uh, julian nagelsman at brusher dortmund has a big video screen and he stops practice and rewinds the play and shows them it's live and then they keep playing. So these are things that are amenable to us, like you say, in a sport context and potentially even in a physical education, if you've got access to some form of delay based technology. I mean, I've done it in units of sport education where I've had three teams, two teams play each other, one team's off. Um, and then that team goes on, plays the other team, that, the other team come off and they watch a video of them, them playing that last three minute game. And then they go back on. And you can do that in a net wall game as well, right? Where you, so this sort of more immediate feed, immediacy of feedback using video technology is something that could be explored. Now you're going to say to me, how is that different if you use a game-based pedagogy or a drill base set, well, they might not be playing a game, right? Um, but that 
is something to be explored um, for sure. Um, the verbal protocol one, I did this study, this my dissertation, what, 13 years ago, and I'm only getting around to writing it up. Um, but this has not gone anywhere. Adrian Turner said in 2003, we should be using verbal protocol analysis. Jean-Francis Grahain has done some work in this area, but we've never done anything. We've not really seen a lot. Alexander Gilarias and his colleagues in Spain have started to do this in volleyball where they're showing videos back in practice and, and they're using questioning alongside the video and they're seeing significant differences between the kids that get the video and the questions versus the kids that don't. So that's how we can stimulate tactical learning. But they're using some of the verbalizations and coding the verbalizations that the kids make or the participants make to, for their research data. So it's having an impact because they're going in and working with coaches and doing this work with the coaches. And then it's a matter of then them training the coaches how to get a system for the kids to play, to come off and look at the video, to go back on, right? And, and then step back and let this happen without them there. So these are some things that um, are definitely amenable for game-based pedagogy research. Very good, thank you. Uh, Even there's some crossover in that in a co in core curriculum, right? So um, I recently read a, a read a little about game uh, gaming tactics, right? Um, or gaming in core education, where kids are obviously they're interacting with a computer, but that the they're saying similar things, right? So that they're, what they're saying is, as these kids are solving these problems, they're getting immediate feedback from the machine that's explaining either where they went wrong or how, what things that they were doing well. But what's interesting is that in this, you took it one more step that says, okay, now we come back and sort of, we all are reflecting and reflecting about um, and that, and that, that takes the coach, right? That takes a live person as well. And the same is happening in these online gaming that gaming itself and the feedback from the machine or the feedback from the video in your case alone isn't enough that it's actually taking um, the educator or the coach as well to sort of round out all of that. Um, so it's fascinating, again, fascinating, maybe only for me um, to see where these things have been crossing over like that um, for me sort of all semester. I, I mean, I, I don't know if that is not, not fascinating because there, there's um, what Amy Price and Shane Pill and Dave Collins, what they're doing is, and this is in, more in sports, in youth sport and whatever, their big thing is about looking at metacognitive behaviors, right? And it links to the ta tactical learning. So there's a huge dearth of information, which Eddie said about how do people learn tactics and what type of uh, approaches are amenable to allow people to enter into this sort of world. Um, she's using um, this digital games, video games approach, but in a, TGFU context so she's got a couple of papers one which just came out today um, and she's using um, James Paul G's digital game literature so that's a uh, stuff that is in in an education context 
which she's bringing, as we do, we love to borrow theories from somebody else, right, um, in physical education. But um, it's, it's fine because it's an educative uh, purpose. So it's not a motor learning thing. This is more about metacognition driven by James Paul G's digital video game research. So the principles that they have for setting out learning in digital vis- uh, video games that create motivating behaviors for young people like make them want to come back for more. Like my Absolutely. Son. Yep. All yep. those are embedded within her digital games uh, approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple of videos on YouTube you can get if uh, Amy Price digital video games approach uh, that she's got and there's some literature around that too. So this is quite um, an exciting area. Yeah. Uh, and, th- and this is a problem because we're, we're getting away from questions that I hate, like which method's best? It's not about that. It's like, how can we best serve the students that are in front of us? Absolutely. It's never going to be about which one is best. I mean, and we can argue those things. We could be a group of content people in any content and that's an ongoing argument. Right. And so I, we feel that, or at least I feel that way. Um, you know, when I sit with a group of math people, you know, they want to bicker about whether, you know, um, you know, task orientation or guided math is the best way to teach. And it's not about that. It's not about that at all, right? It, it is it's about knowing who's in front of you and being able to do the very best that you can and having a tool bag big enough to be able to say, I know something other than standing in front and lecturing, which is the problem in mathematics, you know, and to be able to reach all the kids in the ways that we need to. And um, mm-hmm. it. I have smiled a lot this semester as Ben and Judy and everybody will tell you because I had honestly hoped that somehow um, physical education had been saved from this problem um, and that you all were not having these same what feels like really mundane um, dilemmas and yet you are. Um, And so but we you know, need to, we, yeah. you know, Ben and I and, you know, and the rest of you are the ones that we can lift ourselves out of it and stand yes. on the shoulders and say, we're not accepting this anymore. We're going to do something different. So I think that that's, I guess what the challenge would be for all you sitting around is like, what is something that you can do like Amy's work that's going to be exciting in this area and really right. be a contribution? Um, like the, a lot of our work within the hybrid stuff mm-hmm. is, is first started with, we're looking at motivation only. Yeah. And it's a bit of a problem because when we're saying, oh, it improves motivation and people are starting to say, well, are they, are they playing a better game? Are they doing this? Well, maybe motivation is the most central thing anyway. So if you don't have that, you wouldn't get the other stuff anyway because it's not about X's and O's. It's about things. The other point I was going to make was um, – there's some crossover to me with higher leverage teaching practices, right? Whether you're using game-based pedagogies or not, you still need to use the same high leverage teaching practices that you would expect to to see if you were doing a good job at teaching a traditional four-part lesson, right? Because there are people that will never teach game-based pedagogies, but still be really effective teachers because they use a lot of high leverage practices. Agreed. Agreed. Yep. And, and we still have in the same vein, right? We still have people who don't have the content knowledge to be able to get to that spot 
in their own, you know, field to be able to deliver game-based pedagogies. There's, here's my word, Ben, right? With any kind of fidelity. Um, And so when you jumped on the fidelity bandwagon a minute ago, I was smiling. Ben was smiling at me because I was smiling about it um, because he knows how much I hate that word. And yet, um, Peter Hasty did a very nice job of, of convincing me that we have to have some level of that mm-hmm. and for, for scholarship purposes. Yes. And I agree um, with well, all I also of think, that. And I also think that if um, we need a little bit for things like potentially teacher, teacher performance evaluation, all this kind of stuff, right? We need to know when we go in and look at something, if what's the one or two things that we really want to see happening here? Uh, we can't claim to be using teaching games for understanding or game-based pedagogy if kids spend the whole lesson like running around cones, and particularly if they're running around cones and not being ch- like not it not set up in a gamified, challenging Correct. way, like where there's not a problem to solve. Right. So that's and that's where the, we have a little bit of an issue with game-based pedagogies because a question comes up: What is a game? Right. <laughs> and I could probably make a game out of a lot of like a drill that mm-hmm. people would do. And I think that the teachers are, again, are more effective and maybe don't maybe use game-based pedagogies are ones that can do that type of thing. And they have a lot of, you know, they've hooked the student without having to turn to just playing games all lesson. And, and that's like one end of the spectrum. It's like someone's doing all drills, someone's at the other end, someone's doing all games and they have to sort of, there's got to be some crossover, but at the same time, we can have fidelity to a game-based approach over here and fidelity to a technical approach more over here um, based on the sliding scale. Yeah. Yes, great. Both and, not either or. That's, yeah, for sure. Uh, I, with uh, that, Peter, uh, with that, uh, Stephen, I was thinking you were going to go with uh, what is a game, meaning that we simplify uh, physical education content to the extent that it's all about the physical activity, which I get concerned about, particularly coming back to the US from New Zealand, having nine, eight and a half years there. There seems to be much more of a mantra that we really have to get the kids physically active if we get them physically active doing a very basic game game of tag whatever it might be then we are achieving our goals even though it may not be purposeful and meaningful for the kids uh, mm-hmm. do you want to make a comment about that yes i can make a comment about that i i, I mean i completely agree i think that um that was a bit of a challenge when I went down that road with some of the research. It was like, am I trying to represent game-based pedagogies of, of the panacea of, oh, we just throw them a ball or something, give them something to do, and then we can step back and they'll get their physical activity minutes and Bob's your uncle and whatever. And I think we've been very um, at pains to say, well, that wasn't the idea. The idea was to say that we can still get a physical activity outcome if we are teaching through a game-based pedagogy, because some of the problem is like Paul Canerk found um, in Ireland, some of the, the, the uh, sessions were not active. Like they were fi- about 50% activity because the teacher was exploring concepts or the coach with the players. And this starts to create a, 
a bit of a problem with teachers where kids are standing around and we shouldn't have to apologize for the educative purpose of physical education. Uh, but at the same time, we do need to understand that if they're just standing around as answering questions and having dialogue the whole 50 minutes, probably that's an issue, particularly if it's done multiple times in the week, right? So I think we do have to meet some of those physical activity goals, but it shouldn't just be a case of, yeah, let's get them running around. And as long as they're hot and sweaty, we've done our job to kick them back to the teacher, uh, the classroom teacher. So there, there is a little bit of a, a dilemma there. And, it, you know, it links to um, Tim Fletcher. I don't know if you've had Tim on uh, and the work he's been doing on meaningful physical education. And I think that that is quite good because it brings together a lot of the creative pedagogies that you're obviously representing in this class and the notion of being physically literate individuals. So we have to create meaning and movement, as Peter Arnold would say, right? Um, we have to understand um, how we're moving and why we're moving and what we're moving in order that we can get those outcomes. And I'm sure Scott Kretschmar would argue for that meaning too. You, and they might have read some of Scott's work as well. Stephen, I, I know you've mentioned... Uh... Uh, Paul Kinnerk again there uh, and we're, we're kind of we've, we've been and kind of in line with what Ben's talking about there about like likes of effective and motivational outcomes um, and I agree with you and I think it's great it's important to stress that we shouldn't be putting one pedagogical approach up against the other uh, but rather finding out you know what works best with each one and, and why and at least provide rationales for their use um, you mentioned Paul, and I'm a UL alumni, uh, and I would have sat classes under Kieran Mack and Phil Kearney and a lot of these mm -hmm. people, and we would have been exposed to these models as well too. And Paul is regarded as a revolutionary in his approach and work on coaching pedagogy within Gaelic games. And mm -hmm. I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but his work or his study is with adults, or maybe not necessarily adults, but young adults in competitive environments and yes. uh, rather than the physical education classes. Correct. Now, that's okay. Um, I don't mind that because uh, we've already kind of discussed about the sports settings and physical education settings. What I've seen, I suppose, in Ireland is there's a lot of bluffers and chancers out there who present GBA as something new and they're jumping on the bandwagon with little fidelity when, as you've shown here, uh, it's something that's been happening in research and P for a long time. Uh, and now I can't speak for Paul, but I would be surprised if his incredible success uh, didn't have any sort of correlation with his previous experience and broader training as a PE teacher in UL uh, and practicing in particular this type of pedagogical approach in the gym with his students to the point of fidelity, uh, sorry Jennifer, but to the point of fidelity where the levels of mixed ability he was working with, he was able to create these holistic environments or these, or maybe accomplish these holistic outcomes that you talk about. And I suppose this brings it back to me as a PE teacher then, is that I can see that and I know when I coach teams, I can, you know, I can do a lot of the holistic stuff that I bring from the P hall into a sports setting. But uh, I just wonder in PE, like how does this effective motivational come, really come to the top and where you might see future work with relation to effective motivational outcomes in PE specifically going? Um, well, good question. Um, in terms of game-based pedagogies, I mean, this is 
a little bit of what I was saying is we need to sort of upscale the research. So we've done some good research with the effective domain, but there's a, some branches of the tree we haven't explored. We've got some information where it might be more appealing for girls rather than boys. And people might ask, well, why does that matter? But we know there's a historical thread there with um, girls being disaffected by physical education and particularly um, sport-based physical education. But there's some uh, research out there to suggest that this is a little bit more of a feminine style pedagogy or that it's a pedagogy that's more amenable to a, a broader inclusive group of students right so there's that work that could be done in terms of motivation uh, similarly other types of groups that we have um, I think that there's some work to do in inclusive physical education settings uh, working with uh, we did something at Oregon State where we they had a, an impact program which is a Friday night program for students with disabilities. And they used a lot of the game-based pedagogy work that they'd done in their, one of their courses with hands on that Friday night program, even though they were working with extremely small groups of young people and or individuals to set appropriate levels of challenge, to do things like sitting volleyball, that kind of idea. So I think that there's definitely some work to be done there as well on on um, maybe, you know, can we play games like goalball with a broader group of students to create tactical conceptual learning, but those are more inclusive games to a, a greater proportion of the students. Do you see what I mean? So it's not about physical activity, it's about... Uh, inclusiveness it's about tactical and cognitive learning and educating them about the purpose of physical education um, I might not be answering your question there but um, the other thing we've done obviously is um, we've extended it by you know you've got cooperative learning how can cooperative learning be used within a game-based pedagogical framework so this hybridization there's a lot of overlap between game-based pedagogies and TPSR um, which I, I know you'll have studied too so we, but we've got to draw our lines in the sand. We can't just say, oh, we're, we're using a smorgasbord of everything from all the models. Um, it's, that's why the fidelity is important. It's like if you walk in, oh, today I'm using sport education. Well, what's the features of the sport education? Well, they're in teams. There's some competition, right? yada, yada, right? as Peter would say. So I think that that's where we need to sort of extend the work, more replicative work. Um, more standardization of measures from a research perspective, but also um, looking at um, inclusion potentially as a, a characteristic of motivation. We've been doing a bit of work with hybrid models and we've got good findings to suggest that um, they're more inclusive for girls as well as boys, particularly also in traditional team sports like basketball, which is one study we did. And we picked that study on purpose because we knew that it's not a sport that potential, like particularly in Spain, that girls do. In America, it's a sport that's a little bit more. And I did the study on physical activity in basketball because I thought that would be more amenable to the broader group. But you do have more high-level boys, and that is an issue because they're not as amenable sometimes to coaching up the others, right? Um, so, I, like I said, I don't know if, 
avanced uh, yeah no look i mean again i'm not trying to virtue signal here because i don't think it's fair to com compare a gba to say tpsr uh uh like that but uh at the same time you know i, I think it's uh it's just it's just interesting to see how you know i know from my perspective as a phys high school physical education teacher I, I would be a lot more, I think it would be a lot more feasible for me to teach TGFU than TPSR because mm -hmm. of the type of culture or context of, of physical education where I was. So I'm just trying to, you know, you're trying to mix it all in and try and keep that kind of holistic nature to it as well too. And I, you know, I just wonder where that comes out in TGFU uh, sometimes, but no, thanks, yeah. Well, uh, the other thing I would make, mean from a research perspective is this is where sometimes we, we're getting the tick the box data, but we're, another thing I've tried in research is to interview three students at the end of class for like five or 10 minutes um, and generate data on those and then maybe do some focus groups beginning and end with groups of students to get those qualitative comments from students, which go beyond like the odd qualitative statement at the end of the survey um, to really get a bit more of an in-depth insight into. Uh, and again, there's some stuff using social media where you, you know, if you're doing a season of sport education, as you saw last week, you can get people to do some self-report on like, and, and, and analyze the data that's put on. Like if you're using a hashtag for a sport education season, you could generate some of those data. Um, similarly, if you've got a youth sport group, you could do that. Um, so those are some things that you could think out of the box doing to generate some deeper insights into those motivational and uh, Gray and Spruill did a study where they had interview data and looked at it using achievement goal theory um, and that kind of thing. Uh, we haven't done a lot of work using achievement goal theory since that in uh, game-based pedagogy settings. So that and, and mixing that with self-determination theory uh, at the same time in a study is, is useful work too. Thanks, Tim. Today. I don't know if I have a question. I, I think it's just me processing. Uh, this has been a great conversation. And thank you for the Tim Fletcher uh, name because I am going to hopefully investigate the meaningful physical education piece. And I guess I could use that as a segue. So the, the one thing, and, and again, I haven't had a chance to read a lot. I, I mean, being a veteran teacher, I'm definitely familiar with teaching aids for understanding and different you know, models-based practices. But I guess in, in the kind of keep aligned with Ben's class and what, uh, I, you know, it's been a nice reminder of being a teacher 20 plus years that, you know, we do make different pedagogical decisions during our instruction. And I think about me as a beginning teacher, the pedagogical uh, decisions that I attempted to make then <laughs> versus what I can, I think, uh, do a little bit more soundly now. You know, so there's a couple different things. I, I was um, enjoying the uh, the article, the, the basketball one, but I, I, I underlined, if you give me a moment to find it, um, and that was Hasty's comment about examination of the micro-pedagogical pieces of practice. And so I was, I was really kind of intrigued in your discussion in that piece. And would there be any advantage, and thinking about the promotion, thinking about what really gets people to buy in, it's just, you know, a games-based approach isn't just the next best thing that we've just picked up at the, our, our state conference and we're going to try to implement it on Monday morning, you know, and I think sometimes that's what uh, we've done in physical education. But, you know, I, I think it would be really intriguing to start thinking about, and I don't know if you classify this as, as doing a hybrid method, but, you know, 
I think about back in the day when I was teaching and teaching elementary school and trying to teach different activities and games. So let's say ultimate Frisbee being one of those things and the differentiation that I would do in just a simple game of ultimate Frisbee. So one field, field, you know, I was in a, in a gym, then we went short court. And, um, you know, we may have had students who would have a chance to choose using a disc for their implement and there'd be one group wanting to use a beanbag and one group using a gator skin ball. You know, so I think about that differentiation piece, but, you know, thinking back, um, what pedagogical decisions did I make as a teacher to make this work across all skill levels and interest levels and motivation levels? I think what gets really interesting about models-based practices, and, and I, I teach a secondary um, uh, C&I class, and we do use uh, Metzler's book, and we, you know, we investigate in different structural models, and I get my students to model some of the lessons to each other and you know hopefully they get a chance to do that out in the field but we have something called ed tpa in our state yes we <laughs> definitely have is taking over yeah. taking over a little bit of what we try to focus on and all the different things um but i i do wonder you know the different pedagogical decisions that people think so i, I mean i'm wondering if people hear they hear the words game-based instruction or game-based approach and they're thinking there's a real set way of doing it you know it's it's a uh and I apologize, um, the, the game practice or game practice game, that, that idea, but is that always the best idea for all students? So, you know, exactly. I guess another thought is, you know, what do students say about this approach? I mean, is there any type of research that deals with game-based approach that kind of analyzing student voice as a result of being the recipient? I think sometimes with teachers, I see it all the time in the field. Oh, this is the best decision because, because why? Because you like games, but is that the best way to learn for, you know, all of our students? to learn like listening to you I totally feel your pain I have two children that I'm trying to keep active during the day and I take a lot more walks now than I ever have in my <laughs> life which is good but you now granted my kids are you know five and you know 15 months old but both active but both have their interests that yeah. drives a lot of what they do in physical activity so if you can well, comment to any of that I know that was a lot but yeah um probably three different things so one um we Again, a bit of a start, a study my student did, you talked about interest. So I think using some of the IMI stuff uh, of interest and enjoyment and things links back to the motivation question. And building out from just getting them to do an IMI survey, but following up with the students and asking them. Uh, I think it's an insightful um, point that we maybe need to continue doing more work where we have student voice involved in uh, and and getting that voice on a daily basis and, and doing like a more action research thing where it really starts to Im impact teachers' decisions, pedagogical decisions, right? Um, we've done a little bit of collaborative action research where we work with coaches or teachers one-on-one -on -one as pedagogues, but we're not getting students to come over and talk to the teacher at the end of the class. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Um, so I think that that, that would be a definite, definite extension uh, building off that, I like that you picked up on the micro, you know, uh, micro structures of practice or the pedagogical practices. Um, I think that goes back to the uh, high leverage uh, practices. But I do, there, I've done some work on uh, coaches' decision making in the act of coaching a session, mm -hmm. both in practice and in games, and why they make different pedagogical decisions. Um, or decisions within those games. So I think that 
that work and there's some uh, work on noticing in PE, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. What is it that yeah. teachers and coaches are noticing going on in the learning environment? Mm-hmm. How yeah. does that then, because the, the work on decision-making of teachers and coaches, uh, we, it, they make, it's not like being a firefighter where you decide to act on an emergency situation, which could be life-threatening we make more serial decisions where that you make one decision and there's an impact on something else and then an impact. So when you change a constraint, there's an impact on something else. So does that mean then you have to make a future decision based on that decision, but it's good to understand why the teachers and coaches are making those decisions, right? The second thing, and this is not what's represented in the two papers that you get sent. Another area of research of mine has been coaching behavior so we've done some studies with coaches where we've sat them in front of videos and asked them about their coaching behavior, not necessarily when they're using TGFU necessarily. What happened here? Why did you do what you did there? This was injured. So we collect data on their pedagogical behaviors. We show them the data, the quantitative data, but then we also sit with them and ask them questions about their coaching and do a bit of a, like a stimulated recall interview with them. Um, and that paper is in a, a journal called Reflective Practice. And that was over a season. We did that with some soccer coaches. And then the other paper we did was looking at coaches questioning behavior. But this was observational and not um, interventionist. So, for example, can you, and these are all way more insightful studies. Um, there's a Walsh and Sats in the education area. They've done loads of work on teacher questioning. They've got teacher questioning workshops and why questioning is effective. Um, through our questioning, it needs to be more um, highly guided rather than loosely guided instruction, as we all know, because inquiry doesn't work when it's just, oh, we'll just put stuff out there and let people work it out for themselves. That doesn't happen. We need to guide and or we need to manage the inquiry process so it's a bit more strongly guided than weakly guided. Um, so this relates back to the metacognition uh, at work, but also I think that um, we need more work in that area too, where we're looking at why do they use questions? Why do they stop again when they do? Um, why do they decide to ask a specific one question over another? Like why do they ask um, a tactical awareness question versus a skill and movement question or a question about time and space, right? Um, all we did is we recorded the um, dialogue they had from an observational standpoint mm-hmm. and we did a conversational analysis uh, on that, right? But basically what we find is that coaches aren't very good at asking good questions. Uh, and good means like questions that stimulate metacognitive processes with their players, right? So all the stuff that you said, I'm 100% behind. And that's where I think we have a good link between game-based pedagogy research and some of the things that you do broader in teacher education where you can see this stuff happening in classrooms, but we don't think physical education is a classroom. Well, it is a classroom, right? And even a coaching setting is a classroom because there's learning going on. So we need to understand the depth of this um, process that is happening because it's a learning process and it's at the moment it's too haphazard it's not controlled by the teacher in any systematic way so doing that type of research when we use game-based pedagogies would help present 
a solid framework for best practice, right? Mm-hmm. To be able to move forward. So there was a lot in the answer, but there was a lot in the question. If, uh, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm famous for that. So, you know, one thing I do have to say, and, and then I will, um, I guess you could have got me last week where I didn't have a voice. So I guess I'm making up from last week because I really couldn't talk. But, um, you know, I, I really have enjoyed how you've made connection to the educational research. So that, of course, that's where Jennifer and I, you know, and I, you know, I'm, my background, obviously, of, you know, both my degrees have been at Virginia Tech, you know, I started with George Graham. So I just, I've always been in the school of education. So I guess it just blends that way for me. But I think yeah. what's, what's great. And, and, and the one thing that I've always said to my pre-service teachers is we do a very poor job of advocating what we do in our classroom, not our gymnasium, not our outdoor space, my outdoor space. Right now, my driveway is my outdoor physical education space for my two kids. You know, so it's mm-hmm. whatever that space is, it doesn't have to be constricted by four walls. And I, and I think it would be really, uh, you know, you said something earlier that really, uh, you know, and Jennifer can joke all the time about how I talk about advocacy and how we need to tie into policy. We need to, how do we start using the good things that we do, like with game-based approaches? And, you know, I think about, you know, how, and even in our future research, and Jennifer and I are doing some research together, how do I talk the language of a physical education teacher and talk the language for all education so they can see that value? Because mm-hmm. we know as physical education teachers how well, you know, and as I tell them, you know, try to pump up, you know, being in teacher ed right now is, is really tough, as we all know. And, and you really have to get kids to feel self-efficacious about being a teacher and going into a pretty, you know, it's a, it's a tough time right now to be in education. But to always promote the fact that we see things in such a different level because we have to apply things in the psychomotor domain. So I love hearing the cognitive part. Metacognition, always talk about that idea of being on the outside looking in what you're doing. But again, those of us who've trained student teachers, teacher noticing is huge, you know. But I, I do think that if anything out of this conversation, I think there's gonna be something that I do with my future research and, and hopefully publications um, is to make those connections across different areas. So it's for education. And, and if I choose to talk more as a physical education teacher, I might talk more with the head of a health education teacher, yeah. whatever it may be. But I think that, you know, as far as promoting, like you said, I'd hate for something like this to become extinct in our field when there is a value. I just hope that future well, research think, and, and writings can, can promote that for us. But that's the problem is, um, you know, the reciprocal nature of, I mean, I work in a college of education. I'm very, and I'm working with an education professor on a, social media and physical education monograph and he's out in the world of education he's an english teacher um so he's, he's teaching me how to write properly finally yeah. <laughs> i need to find one as well <laughs> but but i always that's why i wanted to come to where i was because it was a college of education and, and interacting with faculty in education i write to work with the science um teacher uh, teacher educator a lot of the time and I hang out with our college of education uh, there's a math uh, education professor I talk to quite a lot so I mean it, it, we get that broad and there's a lot of like he was talking about quantitative reasoning skills right the other week so there's spillover between all of this so because in Dylan Landy put something out on Twitter about education right and it is it's educative first I mean we're in a school building but even then, in a youth sport contest, it, it, context, it's educa- educative, and it should be, because only 1.9% of even college athletes go on to the you know, professional sports. So even less go from wherever. So the, really, the main purpose of the youth sports is not to win, it's to develop skills that students need for, you know, and if dealing with a problem, um, 
you know, the, the, the um, Dave Collins calls them uh, PCDEs, so phys- uh, psychological um, some things of developing excellence, right? Competencies of developing excellence, right? So PCDEs. So part of the PCDEs is learning about uh, being asked a question, problem solving, um, reflecting, reflecting with others, testing new ideas, right? And that's all embedded within a good game-based pedagogy lesson. But you're right, it comes from the teacher being able to manage the process. Um, And I think we expect, we give people a game-based pedagogy and think that they're an expert in it when there's a learning curve in it. And I think a lot of the teachers I'm on Voxer with and stuff like that, they've talked about that learning curve, about how it's took them a year or two of invested time to become a good teacher of games if they do it in the way that's represented by a game-based pedagogy um we don't have any evidence that they're doing that but um you know they're, they're making a bit of a, a start at entering into that entering into that that world so i think that there is a lot more relation between what we're doing and education and we do sell ourselves short sometimes in physical education even as researchers where we don't feel we can publish in education journals because we're working on teacher education. We've just got to find the, uh, sorry, in physical education, uh, we just got to find the connecting points and some of the stuff that you've alluded to uh, is, is good connecting points. Uh, the last thing I would say is uh, one of my pet projects that I wanted to do was I wanted to take, uh, do a study where I took teachers who um, all started using TGFU. And this is why I don't like which method is best because I'd rather understand how teachers use the model better. So I'd take, say, like a group of teachers who all start doing TGFU lessons, but then at some point we give some teachers a workshop on questioning or one on noticing, right, or whatever we do. And then we throw them back out there to teach the rest. And the idea is that the teachers, you know, the learning of the students would go up if they had the questioning workshop because they'd, they'd have that as a, um, a stimulus. And that's what Phil Ward's doing again with his content development. He's got some teachers who get a content development workshop and some that don't and comparing the two. And lo and behold, the, the te- and it's only a three-hour workshop. It's not like a 16-week class that someone has to take. It's a workshop that, potentially we could even do online and you can go out. And then the other question is um, we could have some teachers that get support, like me standing by the teacher as they teach the lesson and asking questions to go through that cognitive and then backing out. And some teachers that don't get that support and that would be a good study too. Um, But we don't do these studies. And I don't know why we want to answer why one method's better than the other when I'm interested in, what what can we do to make good good games teachers using a game based approach rather than or if they teach this it's better than something else right so that's probably a good way to finish unless we've got any burning questions well actually i think uh, there's well one more question from xion uh, and then uh, we will finish in the next 10 minutes so stephen will cut yeah, off that's fine uh, but, uh, and I had one other question related to uh, the effective domain, which I think you've brought up a couple of times, but I just wanted to, to yeah. finish that off. Uh, yeah, um, looking back on my personal experience in pre-teacher education, um, the courses that I had in 
uh, pre-teacher education was mainly based on me learning specific sports skills and learning how to teach games in PE class. But even after four years of training for me, it was still ambiguous. And I first faced with the real situation in PE class, it became more confusing and complicated. But at the same time, as soon as I started my teaching career as an elementary school teacher, I learned a lot from co-workers who had more experience in teaching PE than me. And that was, for me, that was something really, at some point, it was something totally different from what I learned in my pre-teacher education. Because um, their knowledge and skills that they gave me felt like more authentic um, compared to what I learned in my pre-teacher education. So I think uh, conceptual and pedagogical understanding in game-based based pedagogies must be consistently developed along with our teaching experience in field. And in this sense, um, I would like to say uh, pra practical wisdoms of in-service teachers should be shared consistently with novice teacher and pre-teachers. So, um, and if it is, if it is get, if it get involved more in research and shared with more teachers, I think it can really connect practice and research. So I'm wondering, I'm, I'm not sure if I missed this or not, uh, I'm wondering if there is there are any research who really um, get the knowledge or skills of in-service teacher involved. There's a few papers. There was um, one on in-service teachers that um, that was done by a group from Spain that was in journal of teaching physical education. I think to uh, Diaz Cueto and colleagues. That was a, a good paper. Um, there's not a lot. Amy Ha's done quite a bit of work with in-service teachers as well, coming out of Hong Kong, but she's sort of moved on from that research. And that, and that's another problem is um, doing some of this work. People tend to sort of uh, move on. Um, but I've got a book chapter coming out where I worked with, uh, so for Shape America presentation in 2016 in Boston, I worked with a bunch of teachers where I gave them some of these standardized tests and measurements and got them to um, design a unit of work and sort of collect some data on their own students. It, it didn't have an IRB. It was just, and this is not an IRB book chapter project. It's just, uh, but the idea was that, uh, and I wanted to make this a book. And I talked to Simon Hoskins at Routledge and he said, go for it. And I just need to get this uh, going. But the idea is that we would do a bit like Ashley Casey's book on, you know, reflective practice or practitioner research on teachers and coaches out there using game-based pedagogies to give narratives of best practice and their reflections on using it. And I think one thing that would come about is what you were saying is it takes time. So you can't go in there. And I know Ashley's written a little bit about how we use cooperative learning and uh, Casey and also game-based pedagogies using kind of action research, working with colleagues, and that it was, um, you know, he needed to unlearn quite a lot of his bad teaching practices. Um, he needed to overcome some of the conceptual dilemmas, but also the cultural dilemmas of other teachers looking over the shoulder going, 
why you doing what you're doing, just put them in lines and let them go. Why are you making the effort to set up multiple small side games? Just put them all in one game and let them go back and get changed. So I think that all that is important, but the narratives of practice are critical because if we don't represent what the good teachers out there are doing um, and put it out in the literature in a way that is... Um, meaningful so I worked with one of the teachers to write this book chapter so it's about his experience in using the team sport assessment procedure in a badminton unit right and that's going to come out in a book in the summer um, so the, these are teachers I've met on social media and that have asked me questions and they've done things for me and I've done things for them and this is a way in which I have been able to do quite a bit of research recently with teachers with social media because I'm connecting in with them in a, in a platform that they want to enter into, right? And we're having those pedagogical conversations. We just, uh, me, Peter and Tristan just got a paper accepted on a Twitter conversation we had about sport education. They might've mentioned that last week because I think we got it accepted uh, right when they were in the middle of their presentation. So they were, uh, they were pleased about that. Um, so they, um, but these are good representations of what's going on out there in the field. Yes. The samples are a little bit biased because the student, uh, the teachers on social media tend to be more committed teachers potentially. But if we can get their stories out there um, in, in on various platforms, right? Uh, blogs represented on social media. Uh, we're doing a TGF you at home video series right now, right? With the um, and that's on that hashtag HPE at home's one, but TGFU at home is another one. And so that's a way of connecting in with practitioners and then people seeing, well, who's out there using this stuff? Who can I connect with? And certainly teachers who were out there in the field that got connected with me were reaching out and we were having Voxer conversations. Um, they hit me up on Twitter quite a lot to talk about. So that's where that kind of area in social media has grown from. But I think that those narrative depictions of teachers using game-based pedagogies are needed and are critical. And that's also what I said about me trying to get a group of researchers together, like the, the folks from Bridgewater State, myself, Megan Atkins, there was a couple of other people, get a template out where we could collect some similar data, give that go out and work with the teachers, right? And, and I have a framework in a paper that was in Agora with a, a youth soccer coach, his maiden implementation. I analyzed his teaching behavior. I did interviews with him. He talked to his players about various things. So these are all studies where we get a story about somebody using. Gethin Thomas just told a story about him using TGFU and rugby in a in a youth sport context and that was published and the problem with publications of course is that nobody reads them i get it but again that's changing with social media uh, shane pills putting out infographics that are a bit more digestible about his research um you know we do twitter chats we do zoom conversations we're on i've got a podcast shane's been on you know resto's got his podcast so i think we're definitely doing a better job of that but it could still be better but I completely agree with you that we need to have a chronology of 10 or 12 teachers from across the world 
writing about best practices in game-based pedagogies, and that will be a book that will sell with the, the group. So I'll look forward to you collaborating with me on that project. Thank you. Stephen, uh, great answer and uh, good questions, everybody. Uh, we are going to wrap it up really soon. Uh, I just wanted to uh, bring us back to this notion of uh, the effective domain. And I know you uh, mentioned that earlier, uh, Stephen. Um, and on your slide, it sort of connected the effective domain with uh, motivation. And obviously, I guess, you know, I, if we look at that, there's been a lot of research done in physical education on motivation, but a lot of it's been quantitative. And so I would sort of argue that more broadly speaking, there's a lot more to, you know, the effective domain than motivation. And or, or if we looked at a broader concept like social emotional learning, mm -hmm. um, much broader than motivation. So could you just talk about that a little bit? Uh, I think uh, that's something that we're interested in at uh, UNC at Greensboro. Yeah, I definitely think there's um, some stuff that's interesting there. I mean, how student groups work together. I'm sure they talked about that within sport education last week. Um, I know Sherry Brock had done a bit of work on that area um, and they probably gave some insight into how that would work. And I don't know if Dr. Hasty told his, um, story about the way the, the student took the GoPro into the bathroom but the, when he was collecting his data, but he probably did. Um, it was a funny story uh, he likes to tell. But yeah, we, um, we definitely need to get, again, a bit more um, narrative about the student's experience, which goes beyond, um, when we talk about motivation, um, like I mentioned, interest, enjoyment, the effort they put in, and why they put in certain effort, why they're interested in certain things, um, how do, you know, uh, why do they enjoy certain things more than others, and get some insights. I think that's what Amy's doing with this um, digital games approach. She's really trying to tap into that uh, social-emotional process to look at, um, like, from the ground up, what the kids want out of games and... Not can we just give them what they want, but what, what are some things that we need to um, do to make the learning environment appropriate for young people? Um, I think, so the social grouping is one. Um, I think in PE it's a problem, because I've seen it is, I told you where, um, so some of these observational studies where you look at like uh, Clive Pope stuff, Darwinism in the gym. So the Darwinism of game-based pedagogies can be a problem. So if you've got, a, I mean, I'm going to use high-skilled, but someone who plays a lot of basketball in extracurricular clubs outside, who's then, and it, let's just for simplicity's sake, say as a boy, and you've got a, a, a female student or even, um, you know, a male student that's not got a lot of experience in basketball um, and how they work with them to not just get them up to speed, but that peer learning and peer teaching and how they're sensitive to supporting that peer through that process it is important, right? Um, and so we, we don't have a lot of data on that in PE any, at all, never mind in game-based approaches. So I think that you're right, the effective domain is more than just 
or let's tick a few boxes on a motivational survey. It's usually quick and dirty for research to do that type of thing. But again, we don't have the field-based studies because someone's got to sit on the bleachers and watch what's going on and write a chronology of it, and that takes time. So I think that that's some things that have uh, probably prevented that from happening. But it's good to see that Peter and the group at Auburn are doing a bit of work in that area to try and uncover some of the um, game-based experiences of young people. Um, I, I, I don't, I'm not a social justice researcher. There is a lot of research on um, like so, sports sociology within coaching and about the need to um, like study power of coaches and how that then affects learning of young people um, like technologies of power and that kind of thing mm -hmm. so I think that some of that work could be informative in that socially critical perspective could uh, you know lens could certainly add value to um, TGFU um, research uh, and there was a little bit of that wasn't in your monograph uh, Ben in that social critical paper where we're just not looking at models saying oh it's a great model but we're trying to look at them from that social critical perspective to say that yeah we're getting a lot of good outcomes but they can reinforce some unwanted practices from both the coaches and teachers and also the students um, in those environments if they're not um, managed well by the teacher yes and you know uh, we actually did have Dylan Landy on our uh podcast and so he he uh, elaborated on that but also we were very fortunate we had Richard Pringle from I don't know if you know, you know Richard Pringle from uh, he was at Auckland with me but now he's at Monash and uh, you know if you ever did want to do something on power he's uh, Foucauldian and he would uh, uh, I could introduce you to him he, that would be an interesting uh, approach I think well, for, we have for both of you, you know. We have um, a couple of coaching researchers who were at the University of Denver, Brian Garrity and Clayton Cooklick, and I worked with Clayton at West Virginia. And we had mm -hmm. um, there was a critical paper about from a sociological perspective on athlete-centered coaching, and is athletic athlete-centered coaching all it's cracked up to be from that like social critical perspective? So that was a precursor to us thinking about writing a paper about. TGFU from a you know using a more mm -hmm. Foucauldian lens and thinking about some research questions that could um, be important for researchers and, and and some areas for teachers to consider. Um, and again, you know how it is, Ben. I mean, mm -hmm. you have you have a list of studies you want to do, and you just you know, but then other things come and interrupt what it is you want to do. So these are definitely things that, um, or that is an area that we'd considered mm -hmm. doing something in. And I think that that work would be warranted in all mm -hmm. uh, models and models-based mm -hmm. practices and not just, um, you know, and, and again, you're looking at, for, for these guys here, from a research mm -hmm. perspective, you're looking at, we're probably rejecting a positivistic lens after today to some extent, but mm -hmm. we, we've got a bit of interpretive research, but definitely we need more of that kind of uh, socio-critical uh, and even, uh, you know, emancipative type of research in the, in this domain. And that's certainly warranted as well in sport education, for example. Yeah. And we, uh, 
we haven't been good at embracing that in the US, but in, in Australia, New Zealand, it's very uh, strong. Uh, but uh, I think we're going to call it quits now that we're getting close to uh, tea time, I think, or dinner time or supper time. So, Stephen, uh, thank you so much for sharing uh, your knowledge and understanding uh, of uh, games-based pedagogy, which is very extensive, uh, your experiences and your research and your your it's great to see your practical approach and that the fact you want to work with teachers and kids and schools and, and players. And uh, we all support that. Uh, and it has been a very engaging and uh, uh, insightful session. And I hope we can stay in touch. And uh, some of the papers that you've talked about, we'll probably be emailing you and asking you to, to flick along to us uh, in the near future, if that's all right. Uh, thank you so much for spending your time with us. Uh, I know we've got all, all got a lot on our plates right now and we're trying to survive this uh, unprecedented uh, environment we find ourselves in and the challenges. Well, this is, and, well, this so is going to be... This is helpful and beneficial yeah. for everybody. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it takes the edge off, um, you know, just zone out for a couple of hours and listen to some... Uh, old British guy ramble on about, you know, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I was going to say as a last part and call, if um, obviously, hopefully it was useful. And I, I just wanted to do this presentation at the start to give you kind of a bit of a critical look at the game, because I think that's missing sometimes. I think we, mm -hmm. it is a bit evangelical. It's like, oh, we have a different model than what we usually use. So oh, it must be better than what we use. Yeah, exactly. Hurrah, hurrah. Um, and we'll talk it up and we'll, we'll think it's the best thing since, as we say in England, since sliced bread. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think you're right to, you know, the social critical perspective and other sort of ways of looking at the problem. And also we need to interrogate these models, uh, you know, a little bit deeper, because I think that that's a little bit of the issue is when you only answer, ask what method is best, you miss a lot of the uh, under... Um, lying issues with some of the models uh, but I was going to say if anyone's got any feedback mm -hmm. for me and that doesn't mean oh you send me an email and just say oh you were great thanks a lot but if there's anything um, you want to ask a question about or you know you have a bit of critical feedback or you want a bit more insight into something or you didn't understand something that I, I, I said um, then obviously um, just shoot me a, an email at harveys3 at ohio.edu and then we'll take things uh, from there. Yeah, I'll make sure they have that available. Thank you so much, Stephen, and uh, really appreciate your time, uh, especially, uh, and I hope, I'm glad it was a distraction. And uh, thanks to well, you, I did contact Risto and we are, you know, we're working to get it up there. So uh, it should be available for, for yourself and everybody else. Uh, so I hope you'll be a good resource for everybody. Yep, and we'll uh, our students, we need to challenge them to, to get into this stuff and to be critical consumers, which I think they are, as you've noted. Yeah. Good. Thanks. Thanks a lot, mate. Right. Take care. Yeah. See you later, everyone. Thanks have, for having me. Have a great bye evening. Bye. Thank, yeah, thanks you. again, Stephen. Much appreciated. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.